Good morning, first service. I am Pastor Chase. I'm the executive pastor here, and I'm so glad you're joining us this morning for worship or even online. Thank you for being here. We are in our work series, and let's be real. Jason thought we're going to preach a series on work. Pastor Chase has got to preach a message then. So I'm the workhorse. You don't know that. So I might be as big as a horse, but yes. So uh, as we dive into the message this morning, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to turn there, go ahead. If you don't have your Bible on you, don't worry about that. It'll be on the screen. So we're going to dive in about how work is part of our mission this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Bow with me. Father God, we are just so glad we can gather in the house this morning. God, as we come in here, we ask for the Holy Spirit to move. God, be with this message this morning. Maybe your words and not mine, for yours are wise. God, I thank you that we've been blessed and we are a blessed people that we have the opportunity to have jobs and to work. And God, we pray for those that currently do not have that opportunity. God, we ask you to be with us today. Pray all this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Uh, and this is actually not an easy text to preach on. You're going to find out here pretty quickly why a lot of people don't preach on this text. So let's go ahead and read the whole text first. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whatever they whether they're slave or free. Verse 9, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Well, we don't preach on this text too often, because right in the beginning, it tells you, verse, uh, verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Because when we see this, we're like, Paul, whoa, whoa. Why doesn't Paul just come out and say, hey, slavery's bad? Why doesn't Paul just come out right out and say, hey, we need abolition. We need no slavery, period. Because when we think about this in our context, the first thing that comes to our mind is 19th and 20th century slavery in the United States. And we think, why would Paul be okay with this? And the point to this text, and I need to make sure we all remember this, this isn't Paul's position paper on slavery. These verses, the reason we, we preach around them is because we don't understand them sometimes. This isn't like Paul's position on, hey, slavery is okay and here's how to do it well. That's how we read this text sometimes and that's not what this text means. Paul is doing this text right after we talk about context and reading scripture in context. And what you have a couple paragraphs before is husbands and wives. And then what you have next is parents and children. And then you have this passage. So in this part of Ephesians 6, this is all about how to run the house and how the house is managed. And in this first century context, this was very much a way of life. Now when we talk about slavery, like I said, we have in our mindset 19th and 20th century American slavery. But in fact, at this time, a third of the known Roman Empire, which is most of the Western world at that point, was in slavery. And there was different types of slavery. In fact, some of your Bibles might actually say the word bond servant because that was the type of slavery. 
that you owed someone money and you went to work for them. You belonged to them until you paid off that debt. Now, granted, there are some other traditional slavery that we look at. So people were captured in war and they became slaves of people. But in this time in the first century, some slaves were educated, owned property, or even they owned their own slaves or servants. So why doesn't Paul just outright say, hey, slavery is bad, we got to stop it, it's done. Two things I want to note from this text. Number one, I believe Paul knew what happens at this point when there was a slave revolt. One of the biggest slave revolts ever was was in 135 BC, and 100,000 slaves decided to revolt against the Roman Empire. And then two years later, it was crushed, and the Roman Empire crucified 20,000 people in one day. And I think Paul knows that. But what we see in this text is Paul's using the gospel to undercut slavery. Because we saw that later in verse 9, and masters treat your slaves the same way. He's putting people on the same level. And we start to see Paul using this gospel to say, hey, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And this is the approach we have to take. So he starts undercutting the institution with the gospel. In fact, in Philemon, this is what Paul says about slavery here. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother, he is especially so to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is Paul writing to someone at this point that a slave had run away and was working with Paul and he's sending him back. And he's telling the person that owned him, hey, take him back in. Not as a slave, but as a dear brother. So church, what I'm saying, the reason I'm unpacking some background here, we skip this text, we read around it because it makes us uncomfortable because we don't really understand the context of what Paul's saying. Because throughout the Gospels, throughout the entire New Testament, the epistles, we see the Gospel that's against slavery. And so what Paul is saying here is there is some things of how we act and how we respond to things. So for our context this morning, how I want to use this text is with that word bondservant. You know, I told you earlier, bondservant is something that, you know, hey, you owed someone a debt, so you worked for them. So actually, it's pretty similar for us today. Let's think about it as employer-employee relationship day. Let's be real. How many of you think that you're a bondservant when you go to work? All right. If you're a kid in here, how many of you think you're a bondservant to your parents? That's something we can look at and take a parallel here of how we react Maybe some of you think back to your first job, and maybe that's when you really thought you were a bond servant. So I picked some popular first jobs, and my tech team gave me some cool pictures for them. So let's look at these. Let's see who's there. All right, who is my lawnmowers in here? First job, you were mowing grass. That was the first job. Nice. Who's my lifeguards? I would not trust you to save me, but all right, I'm going with it. All right. All right. Who's my McDonald's or fast food workers? First job right there. All right. Uh, who's my babysitters? Look at all them. All right. Nice. And so maybe that's when you really felt like this bond sermon, when you did your first job. So let me tell you, my first real job was at McDonald's at 15, and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Let me tell you why I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Because until I was 15, I was raised on a farm, and so I was already working on the farm. And comparatively, McDonald's was like heaven. Um, 
I remember one of the hardest jobs on the farm I've ever done is actually stretching out hundreds of yards of fence and setting up fence around the, the actual border of the property. And then if you know what I'm talking about, you're actually driving some steel posts because we're doing some chain link fence. You guys remember the pole drivers? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, at age 12, if you can imagine my five foot even self. Ugh, yeah. I thought that was the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And I haven't drove a pole since, and my stature might feature that. So, And so when I went to work at McDonald's, I'm like, man, this is the greatest thing ever. All I got to do is you like large fries? That's awesome. There you go. But this morning, as we talk about work, Jason mentioned as we open this series, 90,000 hours of our life is spent with work. And so if we look at this text in that context, here's what Paul first says in Ephesians 6, verse 5. He tells us to have the sincerity of heart. What does that mean? What does sincerity of heart mean? It means you're doing something that's truly loving. Church, we need to work with all our heart. The hope is that you go to work and you say this phrase, I love my job. I love my job. Now let's see if there's any boldness in here. Anybody can look at me and say, I love my job? Oh, hey, hey, this is good. I like it. All right. So everybody that did not put their hands up, find those people and say, hey, how do you do that or where do you work? All right, let's go with that. Because church, let's be honest. We spend 90,000 hours doing something. I hope we enjoy it. I hope we love it. But the problem is, actually a Gallup poll found this. 51% of Americans are disengaged in the workplace. 51% are disengaged in the workplace. In fact, for those of you that love Spotify music playlists, there's actually a playlist to quit your job to. Okay. Now, before you go searching it, I do not endorse any of the songs on that playlist. I'm just telling you, it's there. A whole playlist of songs to quit your job to. I don't know if you have, like, walk-in music to the HR office. Yeah. But, like, there's a whole playlist. And maybe that's how we feel this morning. Maybe you're like, Chase, I don't love my job. I want to quit my job. But church, when we look at the scripture and we talk about 90,000 hours spent of our life in this, we're supposed to work with a sincerity of heart. But not only a sincerity of heart, but Paul goes on and says something even more. Verses 6 and 7 say this, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. So we have sincere heart, and now we have serve wholeheartedly, which really means excellence. We need to do our work with excellence. Is there any perfectionist in the room? Anybody like, yep, yep, that's me. I, I love hitting goals, and I love having excellence. One of the biggest reasons we don't have excellence in a lot of things we do is distractions. We are easily distracted people. Some of you might not even be listening right now because there might have been a light like flutter back here. I have no idea. <laughs> so, I mean, I was thinking about like the distractions we have. And, you know, as Jason talked about, we have 90,000 hours in the workplace. So I asked myself, well, how engaged is someone in their eight-hour workday? So for those of you that work eight hours a day, not 12-hour shifts, but eight hours, why don't you turn to your neighbor and guess 
How many hours of that eight-hour day the average employee is actually due diligence at work and actually engaged? Take a guess with your neighbor. How many hours out of the eight? Online, you can drop those in the comments. How many hours out of an eight-hour workday is the average employee engaged? All right. I will tell you that I probably lowballed this because it's actually this. The research suggests and shows that the average worker is productive for two hours and 53 minutes a day. All right, two hours and 53 minutes. So, because I'm a gracious person, we'll say three hours. So, three hours a day of an eight hour workday. Well, what else are we doing? So, here's a list. All right. Here's the un unproductive activities that were done at work. On average, the employee spends an hour and five minutes reading news websites, 44 minutes a day checking social media, 40 minutes discussing non-work-related things with coworkers. Uh, that's my struggle, but only in football season. Amen. All right. Uh, searching for new jobs, 26 minutes a day. <laughs> searching for new jobs. So like, man, I hate this place. <laughs> Indeed, give me something. Taking smoke breaks, 23 minutes. Making calls to partners or friends, 18 minutes. Let me stop here. We just did a whole sermon series on family. So don't try throwing your spouse under the bus for your unproductiveness. Because social media, reading the news, and searching for jobs, that was on average spent more time than talking to your spouse at work or friends. Making hot drinks, 17 minutes a day. That's the church staff's problem. Texting or instant messaging, 14 minutes. Eating snacks, 8 minutes. That could also be me. Uh, making the food in the office, 7 minutes. Oh, I guess that's true. You know what, guys? I got lunch today. I'm making lunch. I'm going to sit half hour in the kitchen and make lunch for everybody. Because that's how much we're disengaged and we're distracted when it comes to work. And so when we talk about excellence, that's our biggest competitor. For some of us, distractions isn't the problem. So maybe you're on the other side of that coin. Maybe you're like, Chase, I don't, I don't get distracted. I'm like productive seven hours and 57 minutes. There's three minutes when I go to the bathroom and that is it. Well, let me talk to you. Who's my achievers in the room? Like, no, I would be mortified if I only worked three hours a day. I get that. We want success. We drive that hard. I remember my first job at McDonald's. I wanted to be like the best person at wrapping sandwiches as fast as I could and making them look awesome. I remember because they, they made me a trainer after that, because after that short range of time. But the reason I was doing that was not because I truly enjoyed it, is I wanted somebody else to say that, hey, you're awesome. Or you're doing great. And that leads us into those of us that might be achievers, but also a little bit of a people pleaser. What do we do with that? Church, I think the problem is that we need to focus back on Jason's last week message. Our identity is in Christ. If we're only going to work and we're only spending those 90,000 hours trying to please other people, no wonder you hate your job. No wonder you're not satisfied. Actually, one of the books that Jason recommended is by Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. And one of the quotes he says here is actually phenomenal. But the gospel 
frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work, for we have already been proven and secure. I hope you know that. If you call yourself a believer, that should be where your identity comes from. It's not by pleasing somebody else. It's that, hey, I belong to God. So we need to work with all our heart. We need to do it with excellence. And then in verse 7, there's one major point that Paul says, and I'm going to focus on it a little bit longer today. This is the verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, comes from the CSB translation. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Good attitude. All right. I think what we need to say is we need to work with a good attitude, church. And let's talk about that for a second. Because we can talk about with all our heart. We can talk about with excellence. But if you want to know my personal opinion, here's the struggle. Here's the struggle. Because in our world today, what do we have a good attitude about? What are we positive on? In fact, I decided to like look at Scripture and say, okay, how many times does the Bible address our attitude? So let me tell you something. I got to 105 references and I stopped counting. Here's why I stopped counting. Because if it says it three times, it's important. If it says it 10 times, we probably should focus on that. If it's at 105 and more, obviously either a lot of people really struggled with it or God knew that we needed to focus on it. 105, and there's more than that, about how we handle ourselves, the attitude we have. My favorite verse as I was trying to go through and look at all the scriptures that focus on this is Philippians 2.14, which says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Man, if, I could, if God was like, Chase, you can have the Sharpie and you can take two or three verses out, this is one. This is one. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Anybody want to be like, yep, I've mastered that. I've mastered that. I'm good. Chase, this sermon's not for me. Because I'm telling you now, I haven't mastered that at all. This is one of my weaknesses. I am great when it comes to managing crises. I'm great problem solver. But when things are just stacking on top of each thing, I do them. But it's not done with a great face, and it's not done with a good perspective. Anybody else in here agree with that? In fact, there's times I get so angry, I look around, I'm like, man, if I want it done right, I should do it myself. Anybody have that mantra in life? And we wonder why we hate our jobs. And now we spend 90,000 hours hating something. We need to work with a good attitude. But complaining gets in the way. The average human complains 30 times a day. Stanford did the research, 30 times a day. In fact, with her hooking him up to neurological things, I don't know all the machines and all the details in that, Stanford study shows that 30 minutes of complaining the, shrinks the hippocampus and inhibits the problem-solving function of the brain with 30 minutes of complaining. I just solved Washington's problems. 30 minutes of complaining shrinks problem solving. Here's how I justify it, and maybe you're going to agree with me. There's times I go home like, man, I just need to vent. 
I just need to vent. That's how we justify it. I just need to get this off my chest. Because we don't know how to process in the moment. We don't know how to be, we don't know how to be thankful for the blessings that God has given us. One of the things that I do to curb myself back from going down that dark trail is this. If I'm having a really bad day at work, one of the jobs that I try to focus on here at Great Oaks is our missions. So I stop for a minute, and I focus on our mission field partners. And I think to myself, okay, I don't have much to complain about. I didn't walk to work this morning. I actually drove five minutes. I could walk to my workplace. I didn't have to go through security checkpoints. I didn't have to have the fear of getting mugged on my way to work this morning. I didn't have to have the fear of somebody trying to attack me on the way to work. I didn't have any of that. I didn't have to worry about coming to workplace and be like, all right, my job might be in jeopardy. And maybe some of you are in that place and I pray for you. But church, there's a lot of us in here that we could find happiness if we truly looked for it. And there's things that we should be grateful for what God has given us. Because work is something that's biblical. It is. Ecclesiastes tells us all about work. About how our hands should be busy. That God has given us that. We need to work with a good attitude. We need to stop complaining 30 times a day. Now, so here's what we got so far. Work with all our heart. Work with excellence. And work with a good attitude. You might look at me and be like, man, what an HR meeting this was this morning. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. Caterpillar probably call me next week to come in to speak. That's fine. <laughs> and, and you're like, where's the Bible in this? Or where's, where's, where's what, what, how does this apply to the gospel? Let me give you this illustration to help us get there. When we look at the Old Testament, there are two cool stories that I like to look side by side. Jason mentioned one last week or the week before about the Israelites. And as Moses was leading them out of captivity. And these people were in slavery. I mean, being beaten, malnourished. And they're wandering in the wilderness. And God has given them manna to eat, quail to eat. They got water that Moses is striking a rock and getting out of it. They got everything. But incessantly, time after time, God just let us go back to Egypt. This is miserable. Church, the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side, has been happening since before Jesus. And guess what? It's still just grass. Because even the Israelites did not see the goodness that God was preparing them for. And they constantly complained. Then there's another story that I put side by side is the story of Joseph. A lot of us know the story, you know, the technicolor dream coat. His brother sold him into slavery. Then he gets purchased by Potiphar and put in Potiphar's house. What does he do? He works his way up to be the chief slave in the house. And then resist temptation and then gets thrown in prison. What's he do? Works his way up to be the best prisoner. And then is recognized by the king after someone gets out and remembers him. You know the verse we don't have with the story of Joseph? And Joseph complained incessantly. It's not there. If that was me, I would have. 
Really, God? Like, this is what you have for me? So again, as we come back, as we circle back, what does this have to do with why we're here at church? Church, I hope you know that our work matters because the gospel matters. And here's what I mean by that. We're called to do things with our hands, and we're called to be skilled laborers. But not only that, your attitude, what you put off, is the first witness to this and what we do. Because let's be real, if you're sitting in your cubicle every week or you're, you're on the job site and all you're doing is, man, this is horrible. This is, this is ridiculous. This is gross. I don't want to be here. And then you look at your neighbor like, hey, you go to church, right? Yeah, it's all right. That person might look and be like, has faith even changed you? I should be secure in what we do because... I have Jesus. Now, church, hear me out. I know there are jobs that take advantage of people. I know there are jobs that are not healthy for family. I'm not preaching about that this morning. I'm preaching about our attitude and how we do things. Yeah, you have the discernment to figure out whether or not your job is good for your family and where it should be. So that's not even the sermon topic. So don't think I'm lumping all that together. What I'm saying this morning is, what is the attitude we carry? Better yet, what's your witness look like? Before you think I'm casting judgment, I ask myself the same question. Because it's super easy to get frustrated. Super easy to get angry. Easiest way to get me angry is when a mistake has happened, it's already been addressed, we have a solution, and for some reason it has happened again because someone didn't follow the solution. Amen? That's an easy way to get me angry. And I have to be careful of that. And I have to watch that. Because guess what? We're supposed to have grace. We're supposed to have mercy. We're supposed to have understanding. We're supposed to work like we love it. So we talk about work and why it matters. Because it does tie to the gospel. Because you're going to spend 90,000 hours in a place and I hope you show Jesus. And the way you're going to show Jesus is not by talking about him. You're going to show Jesus by how you carry yourself, how I carry myself. And some of you might be like, well, Chase, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Don't for one second think that's not a full-time job. You have 90,000 other hours with your children to impass upon them what it means to have a good outlook on life, what it means to have good character, what it means to battle with resilience. Our work matters because the gospel matters. And if people see our example, there's one place our example should always point, and that's to Christ. Church, if you don't know this, how we do work is the way we live out the gospel. As I was preaching at Sermon Team this week, you know, we call it Sermon Team. It's usually like three or four people from the staff. Whoever's giving the message preaches to those people, and we give constructive feedback. Um, and one of the points I was preaching on, and Jason's like, Chase, you considered this. And I'm like, no, I did not, and that's actually a really good point. So I don't like stealing things without giving sources, so this next point's all Jason. You know, the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it says this. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, those of you that have heard enough preaching from stage up here, you know that the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. It's a form of Greek. And when you study that, and when you go back and look at the Great Commission in the original language, the better translation of that, instead of go therefore, it's as we go. Because when we read the Great Commission, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Sometimes we think that that's just a calling for a few people. We think that's just a calling to select few. You're like, no, no, that's for pastors. Or that's for church leaders. That's for Sunday school teachers. That's for these people that God have called separately. In fact, it's not. It is a global mandate for all believers. No matter when you came to Christ. No matter where you're at on your journey. I don't care if the only verse of scripture you know is John 3.16. You have a mandate that says, as we go, we share the gospel. As we go, we make disciples. And we make disciples by having relationships. We make relationships by being friendly. We make those relationships by engaging each other and listening and sharing in burdens and problems. Church, we've forgotten how to do that. We gotta get better. We gotta do a better job. Do you know how I know we're not doing a great job? I don't mean this to hit hard today, I don't. How I know the church is not doing a great job is I look at our world. I could sit all day long and blame Satan. I could sit all day long and blame evil. But you know what? I'm not gonna give Satan more credit than he deserves. Some of that blame falls here, at me personally. What am I doing? Who am I engaging with the gospel? We got enough evil in the world. I think the last couple weeks have showed that. So church, what are we gonna do? The workplace is one of the places you get to do that as you go. You have 90,000 hours in a place where you engage people with our attitude, with our work ethic and excellence to live out the gospel by showing who you are, not speaking who you are. As a pastor, one of the things I always try to look at, especially when I was doing connections and discipleship, is how is the church growing spiritually? There's a lot of measures that people have for how you're doing in spiritual health. You know, there's church attendance, there's prayer, there's teaching and learning. Are your, are your people in church mentoring one another and having accountability and life groups? I want to add a different measure this morning. And here's the measure I want to add. If your spiritual health was solely measured on your work, what would be seen? Let me change it. If your spiritual health was solely based on how you act or how I act in the 90,000 hours of my workplace, where are, you, where are you at? How are we doing? I think we found something we should work on. We have 90,000 hours. Guys, capitalize on that. If you want help and know how to do that, talk to your life group. If you're not involved in life group, talk to me. If you want to just talk to me or Jason, one of our pastors, have that conversation. 
We want you to be fully equipped to be able to engage your workplace with a healthy attitude and to show that of Christ. That is the mission this morning. That is your homework, is to go to work each and every day this week and say, man, I am blessed and I am happy. Find a way to get there. Let's pray. Bow with me. Dear Father, God, as we just, we talk about how we spend 90,000 hours in our lifetimes at work. God, may we know that with everything we do, the heart of the matter is our heart and how we carry that out. God, may we be a people that allows you to mold us, that allows you to just chisel off the rough edges. May we be a people that listens to each other, that has understanding and grace and mercy. And God, may we remember that we are blessed because we are first blessed because our identity is in you. If we call ourselves believers, that's where it's at. And God, if there's anyone in the room this morning that's never known the love of Christ, God, I pray as they're sitting here that they just have a conversation with one of us at Connection Central or somewhere else that says, hey, I want to know more about that. God, be with us as a people. May we be your church and show the cross through how we act. We pray all this in your name. Amen. We're going to do something different this morning. And, and as we go into our time of communion, the uh, worship team is going to play two songs. And as we get there, I want to share some lyrics of the first song they're going to do. And it says this. Fullness of eternal promise, stirring in your sons and daughters, earth revealing heaven's wonders, spirit come, spirit come. And as they get to a course, pour it out, let your love run over here and now. As we talk about what communion is, if you're new to church, let me talk about what communion is. This is a symbol that we know that Jesus went to the cross. And as he was nailed on the cross, he shed his blood for us, for salvation. And he had broken body. So what we do this morning is there's four stations. So even if you're not new to Great Oaks, this is going to be new to you. You have two songs the worship team is going to do. And I want you to come up to one of the stations. And you're going to take a piece of bread and you're going to dip it in the cup, and you're going to have communion as a family, as an individual, whichever way you want to do it this morning. And as you do that, you're going to go back to your chair and just reflect on the great mercy we have in Jesus, that God sent his son so we could be in unity with him. And he died on the tree for us, for me, for you, for your spouse, for your kid, for your friend, for your neighbors, and honestly, for everyone you work with. So as we go to worship, I'm going to ask you can stand, you can sit, worship however you feel comfortable as we go on these next two songs for time of communion. Let's do that this morning.